This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. Well... We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Clara Cook and joining me today is my fellow co-host Duncan Barrett. Hello Duncan. Hi Clara, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Um, This week that we're going to be talking about um, possible choices, so we are not going to be playing a game of would you rather or deciding on what we're going to have for dinner. We're talking about the kind of choices... Um, between life and death, or choices where either outcome is potentially cat- catastrophic or negative. So, the first thing we're going to talk about is um, a particular impossible choice that's become internationally known, both in our culture um, and also as a way of describing impossible choices, which is called Sophie's Choice. So, Sophie's Choice it was a book that was written um, by William... Styron in 1979 and then was later made into a film in 1982 with Meryl Streep and it tells the story of a young man called um, Stingo who becomes friends with a woman named Sophie and her lover Nathan and Sophie is a World War II Holocaust survivor who's a Polish woman who when she was in Auschwitz when she first entered the concentration camp was forced to choose between two of her children she was forced to decide which child lived and which child died Um, and unfortunately despite the fact that she felt like she couldn't make this choice she was forced into making it and one of her children went off and was killed immediately and the other one died later on so she's racked with guilt by this choice and she carries it around with her and doesn't really deal with it in a very good way well she lies about it i suppose that's the thing is and i think there's a sense certainly in the film and i think this is there in the book as well there's a sense that she's almost lying to herself as well because there's there's a scene in the film which is quite well act- i mean the whole thing is obviously it's meryl streep it's going to be well acted but you know it's it's kind of interesting she's she's sort of telling she it's like sort of peeling an onion finding out what happened in this story and it's only like at the very end of the story that we find out what the real choice was but previously she's told sort of slightly different versions of what happened that are kind of revealing some information but holding other information back and I think there's definitely that sense of you know not only is she racked with guilt not only is she unable to kind of process this she can't really admit it to anyone um and then she you know when she finally does admit it to someone at the very end of the story um spoiler alert but we kind of spoiled what this story is about anyway (laughs) she goes and commits suicide the next day so it's kind of um it's almost like that admission is something that she can't kind of there's nothing past that you know that's the kind of that's the end of her story is is admitting what happened and sophie's choice has now become like a cultural reference for um a difficult situation in which a person has to make a choice um, between two equally unbearable options that are going to have essentially two equally negative outcomes. And so 
you often see, well, not often, but you can hear people say, oh, it was a Sophie's choice. And sometimes, actually, when you're reading the news, especially about things that are really, really upsetting and very difficult, like um, uh, international peace processes or, or something like the environment, you know, it's a bit of a Sophie's choice. Do we do this, or, um, which is one choice, which is going to be bad, or, or do we choose the other choice, which is going to be bad? But it's, it's, it's not just um, choosing from an array of choices. It's normally choosing from just two. Two scenarios, two situations, two children. And this actually relates very well to, well, a lot of the impossible choices that exist in Star Trek. And one in particular, recently in um, episode six, I believe it is, of Discovery, called Letha, or Lethe. <laughs> <We're not laughs> I was sure hoping which. Clara was going to resolve this, because Clara has a classics background, but apparently <laughs> it, it still remains mysterious. But I, I'm going with Lethe. Lethe. What are you you're Lethe. going with? Lethe. Let's, let's yeah. say Lethe. <laughs> Which is, um, uh, I think it's the it's the term for like forgetfulness, really, isn't it? It's a river in the sticks, yeah. I think, isn't it? Um, and this is, I'm going. This is from Virgil, actually, from the Aeneid. I think there's a scene in the Aeneid um, where the the souls of the dead, basically, in order to be reincarnated in a new life, they have to drink from the Lethe, and then their their memories are sort of wiped. Essentially, very Star Trek, really. They have their memories wiped, and then they can go off and you, you know. And it's interesting. Obviously, the episode Lethe was also the episode where Ash Tyler is brought onto the ship, and it's kind of curious, I think, to know whether the title of that episode is that a clue to what's going on with Ash, which obviously at that point was, you know, was not particularly obvious. Was that a kind of early tease of what was going on there? Um, does it relate to the Sarek story? Because actually, interestingly, the Sarek story is quite unusual in that although although it is all about a memory and it is all about this this shameful memory, and, and they talk about shame at the end of that episode, um, you know, she says to him, you're feeling shame or whatever, and he, he then becomes all kind of closed off about it after that. But it's actually unusually for these Star Trek versions of the story. It's it's not a memory that he has repressed himself. It's not a memory that he is sort of personally um, unable to recall. It's a it's a guilty secret. It's something that he's lying about. You know, just as in Sophie's case, in a way, you know, there was this fact there was a one version of the story that had been presented outwardly, and then there was this kind of secret other version. So in a way. You know, Sarek might want to forget, he might want to drink from that river, but uh, actually he knows exactly what he did and what that meant. Yeah, and I think, in a way, Sophie's situation is, is a horrific one, and one that we wouldn't necessarily presume, well, we wouldn't necessarily state is, is in any way the same kind of dilemma that Sarek has, because obviously he's not having to choose between which of his children will live or die. Um, but Sophie's also... I mean, she's, she was very guilty about it, and she's obviously, like you said, she's psychologically damaged by the, the the situation and the decision, but she's being forced into making a choice that in any other situation, in any other world world event, um, it's highly unlikely she'd ever be made to make mm. that choice. I mean, we're talking about um, a, a horrific, horrific regime. We're talking about... Um, some of the worst crimes against humanity that like human beings have ever seen. And, um, and she's more mixed up in that. And, and so she's being asked to make a choice that would never normally occur. Um, I feel Sarek's choice is impossible choice is it's also the result of, of, of pr persecution and prejudice and discrimination, but it's, it's a decision that um, is, is it actually 
could happen more often than say mm. for instance someone being chewed having to choose between two of their children living or dying and the big mistake that he makes is he doesn't tell michael that yeah. he had to make this choice he lets yeah. michael go on to believe that she wasn't good enough to get mm. into the vulcan expeditionary force um you know in the in the, in the science academy vulcan science academy and he goes on to let her believe that she's inferior and that psychologically impacts on her mm. um and that's definitely the sign of a bad father Sarek is a terrible father. <laughs> I mean, the more we find out about him, the, the, the worse his kind of credibility gets. Yeah. I'd say he's probably, he's up there with Worf. They're kind of vying for the title of who's the worst father in Star Trek. I think Worf's worse, but you think, yeah. well, well, maybe. Worf's maybe. more absent. Worf is more absent, that's true. But I mean, Sarek, you know, playing some pretty awful games, really. Yeah. But I mean, I think what's interesting is it, so the question that is posed to Sarek is, is totally objectionable and unreasonable. You know, the Vulcan saying to him, well, you can choose, you can choose one of your uh, children. I mean, really, arguably, since Michael Burnham had actually already applied, maybe they should have, you know, accepted her on that basis and then that's hard luck for Spock. I suppose it's interesting, you know, you're saying it's, it's different. Of course, it's not as serious as Sophie's choice where literally one of them's going to live and one of them's going to die. And as you say, most people don't have to face that kind of decision. But people do have to face decisions where, for example they can afford to send one child to the uh, more expensive school or they can afford, you know, they can afford certain benefits for one child, but not for both. Um, and actually, you know, in situations where, say, food is scarce or other resources are scarce, people do make these kind of decisions, probably not in quite such a stark way. But I came across a story, for example, when I was researching my book about the Channel Islands occupation of a woman who had been her... her her, her daughter got extra rations as a child, basically. So she got slightly above the adult ration, which was standard for children. Um, and because her mother was, uh, you know, very sick and, and short of food, she'd been giving her daughter's ration to the mother. And the mother was like in her 80s or something. And the doctor found out about it and was really angry with her and said, you can't do that. You know, you, your mother's had a long life. If she dies now, that's by the by. You can't take from your daughter and put her health at risk to help your mother, basically. Uh, and so she stopped doing it and the, you know, the grandmother died within a month or two as a result. But basically, as far as the doctor was concerned, you know, that was, I mean, in that situation, I suppose most, most people given the choice, of course, they would choose their children over their parents. But at the same time, it does show that there are situations where someone has limited resources and might be forced to make very tough decisions, you know, neither outcome of which is really acceptable. No, I agree with that. that it... That's a good example, actually, because that does raise the question, should you choose, I mean, how far do the familiar, familial bonds go? I mean, should you be choosing your children over your parents? Should you be choosing um, your parents over your spouse? Or should you be choosing your spouse over your parents? That kind of thing. I think with it does depend on the situation. It does depend on the person. But I think there's something very particular about someone having to choose, a particular dilemma about someone having to choose between two children. Mm. Because it's ingrained in us that we're not supposed to have favourites when it comes mm. to our children you mm. know we're not supposed to favourite one child over another and, and invariably in lots of families one parent does have a favourite child because that child resembles them more or if they're not sure they like themselves so much it resembles <laughs> their partner more and they prefer the child's more like their partner yeah. um, and in most most families at least the families I know um, there's been cases of mild favouritism in one family that I know whose name I will not mention um, there's been a cases of there's been a case of um, and it's by by this favouritism is extended onto the extended family so one side of the family is favourited more than the mm. other and it's, it, it was extreme favouritism between two two sons and um, 
it's definitely caused, I would say, a certain amount of psychological grief for many, many years, well into adulthood. Mm. So um, I actually think that Burnham has a very good grievance, has a very good cause for grievance against Sarek. Mm. You know, here is, I mean, I know that he does, and he does say that he, uh, when they get back to Discovery, he sort of says, you know, when they're in sick base, or says, you know, technically we're not biologically related. Which and is again like one of his like, unspeakably awful things, things to say. Yeah. And she does <laughs> to say, she says. basically disavow the fact that he's been her father for her entire life. life yeah, exactly. And, and raised her. her and, yeah. and also, um, Moulded her to be yeah. like a human Vulcan, yeah. um, and she says very a very good line which I really liked, which she says that's you know you can do better, yeah, you can yeah. do better, and we'll have this conversation again. I'm not going to force you, but you mm. can do better, um, which you never hear uh, Spock ever saying to his father. No, there's more true. like resentment there, mm. um, maybe more anger, but um, you never hear Spock uh, confronting his father and saying like, you know. I think you could behave better. I think you could mm. be a better father in this situation. Mm. Um, but moving on to the idea of blocking out the memory or all the consequences of an impossible choice from mm. your mind, um, you said that there was an episode of Voyager that was very um, similar to Sophie's Choice, where the Doctor was forced to choose between two mm. kind of impossible situations. Yeah, so the episode Latent Image um, is is the one in which basically the Doctor discovers that uh, that he's missing certain memories, essentially, that he's um, had his program's been tampered with. And it turns out, as they go through this whole sort of investigation, but it turns out basically that there was this situation sometime previously where he was in a kind of triage situation where he had two equally uh, sick patients, one of which was Harry Kim, one of which was... Ensign Jatal, I think is her name. Some Ensign that we'd never encountered before, clearly. Um, and basically, and he chose to save Harry's life rather than the other, you know, rather than the other Ensign's life, um, and wasn't able to deal with the fact that he'd made this decision because basically there was no, there was no medical reason, there was no practical reason, there was, as far as he was concerned, no real ethical reason to make that decision. I mean, I think it, it's interesting though. We sort of talk about why do we focus on the impossibility of the choice but in a way maybe we also need to think about why do people make the choice that they do I mean why does Sarek choose Spock and not Michael Burnham especially when she's the one standing in front well not literally in front of him but you know standing the other side of the courtyard or whatever waiting to hear um, why does Sophie save her son and not her daughter We, do, I mean in Sophie's choice I don't think there's really any information as to why she saves why she chooses the child that she does um but she, you know, she does under duress make that choice. She does sacrifice the little baby girl rather than the slightly older boy. I don't know if it's significant in both instances. It's the boy that's favoured over the girl, which of course, you know, traditionally in a lot of families is what happens, that male children are, you know, are favoured and are treated differently. Um, but it's kind of interesting. And, and with the Doctor, you know, he keeps saying, I had no reason to choose. Why did I choose Harry and not this other character? It's difficult for us as viewers because we know Harry's the main character. <laughs> it's kind of obvious he's going to choose Harry. Also, the person assisting him is Tom Paris, who's Harry's best friend. I mean, if Ensign Jatal's, you know, fiancé was the one uh, goading him on, would that make a difference? Do you know what I mean? I mean, there must be all kinds of factors at play there. Um, but it's kind of interesting. I was trying to look into this. I was looking up uh, rules of triage and so on which I don't know very much about and maybe if one of our listeners has a medical background and can fill us in on this I'd love to know what the answer is but I couldn't find anywhere any information dealing with the situation where you have two patients who are equally 
sick, basically. You know, it is all about, like, well, if this person is more likely to die and this person's more likely to survive and the chances that, you know, it's kind of weighing up different possibilities and it is very kind of rational and, and cool and detached. But the fact is, doctors must have to make these kind of decisions all the time in some ways. And in a way, it's surprising the doctor has never been presented with this sort of classic scenario before and had just had to make a choice on whatever basis but yeah you're right so what happens in the episode that's quite interesting is so a lot of it is about the kind of mental repercussions of it so he basically has effectively a breakdown as a result of it he can't get over this thing he becomes kind of obsessed he keeps going over uh he becomes obsessed with the idea of choice you know saying i could have done this i could have done that what should, what should I, someone have for breakfast you know every choice that we make in life that there's something kind of appalling i suppose about the freedom that we have as human beings to or as holograms or whatever to make choices in our lives um and it's, you know, it's it's kind of interesting. So we talked about, you know, Sophie and her, her situation, she became an alcoholic. She had a lot of uh, sort of, you know, legacy uh, of that as a result. Um, Sarek, it just seemed to damage his relationships more than his own psyche in a sense. But it, obviously he was carrying a lot of guilt and shame around that. Um, the doctor had a kind of complete breakdown about it twice. And only the second time in that episode, they kind of help him through it. Um, and interestingly, in the novel, uh, Mosaic, the Voyager novel, there's quite a similar storyline with Janeway, where um, the way it's told is she's faced with this impossible choice, and we don't, or, or rather, we don't understand that that's what's happened, but we understand that something awful has happened to her, and she basically has uh, uh, sort of um, suffers terrible depression for many months and can't get out of bed, and as a result, and it's only right at the end of the book that we kind of learn what it was that prompted that. So in all these stories, there's this kind of connection between these this idea of the impossible choice, which is what Sarek calls it, and a kind of mental breakdown that ensues as a result, because we just can't, uh, sort of can't rationalise that kind of ethical situation to be put in. Well, I'd say in most choices, I mean, you've got a question what an impossible choice is. Mm -hmm. And so when preparing for this podcast, I started really thinking about what an impossible choice is, um, like the very nature of the idea of the scenario. And... <clears throat> There are lots of different types of impossible choices. Um, and I think one of the things that I thought was interesting about Late Image is that at the very end, the Doctor starts talking about possibilities. Mm. And he says, well, there's an infinite number of possibilities. And is it an impossible choice? Because there are so many possible outcomes that you can't make an informed decision. I mean, that's one kind of impossible choice. Mm. There's, there's the idea that an impossible choice is choosing between two equally difficult or distressing scenarios like Sophie has mm. you know I mean Sophie doesn't have to think about all the possible outcomes she knows the outcome is the, mm. a child is going to die it's that it's that her choice is got two equally destructive outcomes the doctor because it's science and it's medic me it's medical and because it's not just down to him choosing, it's also down to whether, you know, Harry Kim has has more of a fever or is is, is in better shape than the other ends in, or the other ends in is slightly more damaged. And for him, it's there's like an infinite number of possibilities. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not that he knows for sure one of them's going to die. It's that he he can't possibly predict how the situation is going to resolve itself, and so he makes the decision that he can at the time but with a limited amount of information. And I guess that's what triaging is. They're looking at all the information. This patient has diabetes mm. um, and high blood pressure, and so this patient is more at risk of dying sooner than this patient who may have diabetes but lower blood pressure, so we're going to operate on the higher blood pressure first. Mm. And um, So uh, doctors very rarely are trying to make decisions um, 
without information. Even mm. even in a severe emergencies, they're reeling off information to each other. You know, mm. the param- first thing the paramedic does when it comes into an emergency room is reel off a list of uh, of information because they want to re- they want the doctor to be making as informed choice as possible. Even if it's an impossible choice, it's slightly less impossible because it's informed. Whereas I don't think Sophie. I mean, Sophie, there wasn't a variety of possibilities for Sophie. There was just no. really two. And in well, well, I suppose there's the third... I mean, the third option is to refuse to make the choice and then both children are killed. And that's the... And that's the thing is, I suppose, when we say these choices are impossible, obviously the, the whole... The reason they're traumatic is they're not impossible. It is possible to make these choices. Do you know what I mean? And that's what... Um, in a way, that's what creates all this guilt and shame is the fact that they discover... It's you know it's as if you you're discovering that you're capable of something that morally you think you shouldn't be you shouldn't be able to choose between two children and yet somehow she does because she has to and you know I mean it's it's a grotesque situation to be in and in her case it's you know it's really a kind of sadistic it's the kind of you know worst excesses of kind of Nazi cruelty that she's put in this situation it's it's not someone with limited resources it's not someone you know who's only able to save one person it's someone who's you know, it's it's almost a kind of sick mind game, basically. It's a kind of attack on her as a moral human being to make her do that. But at the same time, in a way, we call them impossible because we wish we wish that it was impossible. But in these stories, what we have is actually someone does make these decisions. Um, and it's interesting when Sarek says, he, he says, you're asking me to make an impossible choice. And the Vulcan kind of looks at him and, and says, well, that doesn't sound very logical. <laughs> you know, he's basically, he, he's, he's saying it's not true. You know, you're, you're deluding yourself. That's kind of, that's a human attitude to say that these choices are impossible. The rational approach is to say, you know, I mean, the Vulcans, you know, we have the needs of the many or whatever. We, there are principles by which uh, sacrificing one set of people in, for the benefit of another is, is totally acceptable. And I suppose if the situ- if there isn't, if, if it isn't the needs of the many and the one, if they're just, you know, one and one, what do you do? Do you toss a coin? Do you, do you try to come up with a, a basis? Um, and I think the reason it's, it's hard when they're both children is that they, those are like both trump cards. I mean, in any other situation, if it was, you know, your child and your parent, if it was your child and your partner, um, that the, the, the child is like the one that you're always going to save. Do you know what I mean? In a sense, most people are, are not going to sacrifice their child to save anyone. Um, but if there's another, you know, if they've got two children, then it does, it, it, it creates a kind of, like a sort of moral conflict because cat, and this sort of goes back to the question of like being a good parent or whatever. Um, and that is sort of the dilemma about favoritism and so on is, is, you know, do you love your two children equally? Is there any kind of difference in how you feel about them? Um, and, you know, part of being a good parent, I suppose, is, is treating them equally and, and not showing that kind of behavior, uh, which is another reason why Sarah is <laughs> just such a generally awful person. <laughs> so, um, so that kind of does lead to the question of, um, but I think I agree with some of they say, but I also disagree with it as well. I think choosing between two children about who between which child will live or die, I think, is an impossible choice that would be pretty universal for most human beings. Um, but I just mean, what do we mean by impossible? Because it's not literally impossible, is it? No, she, does, she, she, does, she, does, make she it. does make the choice. 
Um, it's but like I mean, morally but it's impossible. Like, but it's like, it's, a no, it's like a no-win scenario. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. impossible. It's seen as impossible because both outcomes are going to be equally devastating. Yeah, There's yeah. not going to be... A, a, you know, it's not... I mean, we, we'll go on to talk about this, about impossible choices that are seen as impossible, but actually the person making them sees one of the scenarios mm. as slightly more of a positive one. I always read it that Sophie chose her daughter... I mean, I've just this is what I just thought, was Sophie chose her daughter because she didn't think her daughter was likely to survive Auschwitz compared to her son. Her son was older, so maybe stronger. Maybe, maybe she did favour her son over her daughter. But I think in a split second, I just read it, that she makes this split decision that she's been forced into, um, that she just, like, survival of the fittest. And she's, I think she thinks that her son has a greater chance right. of surviving um, the Holocaust than her own daughter. Of course, that Which would make that a just, you know, sort of a justifiable... If there's a rationale behind it, you can kind of... It's still an emotionally impossible I mean, it's, Yes, though. it's still emotionally possible, but, but it's interesting because... You say that, and I can see why you might. I I can't help thinking: is that just because you want that to be the case? Watching it because it's so often. I mean, it's it's traumatic film to watch. Yeah. You know, it's a traumatic uh, book to read. It because it's so awful, um, and you shy away from that. And I suppose is there an element of kind of bargaining with it and trying to make sense of it? And I think it's kind of interesting. The book doesn't give us, and the film doesn't give us any information about that. You know, why she makes. I mean, given that the whole thing is focused on this choice, we don't... And, and in some ways, Lethe doesn't even... I mean, it's you, I, I sort of took it that it may be implied is the fact that, yes, Sarek has brought up Michael Burnham, but she's not biologically his child. And, you know, that probably is something that would be quite common if someone has biological children, adopted children, they may not treat them entirely equally. And that maybe that was the reason that he chose Spock over her. And also because of a kind of Vulcan racism that, you know, yes, he's he's trained her to be Vulcan, but she's not Vulcan, you know, and ultimately he's going to give it to the at least the half Vulcan because he's, you know... But, I mean, but again, that's me. I don't think any of that is explicit in the episode. That's me kind of putting on yeah. my assumptions about why does he make that choice. So I think, I think the two big differences for me was that Sophie's choice seems like a much more universally impossible choice for mm. most people, mm-hmm. whereas Sarek's impossible choice, although it is very a very difficult and unpleasant choice to make. And I think that most of us watching Star Trek Discovery would probably agree that mm. the lead Vulcan in charge of the Vulcan Science Academy is like a xenophobic, like, nasty man. <laughs> I could say something worse, but <laughs> this podcast will be publicly broadcast. So, um, and so, um, but I, you got, is the choice universally impossible that something that everyone would struggle with or is it impossible because it's being struggled with by that particular character? So this, I think, and this choice is mm. particularly difficult for Sarek because he's an unusual Vulcan. It wouldn't be difficult for any other Vulcan. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And the other Vulcan for... basically says, you're acting like a human. Here, yeah. You know, yeah. But then he married He married a human. He did, yeah. And he had a human, half-human son yeah. and he adopted, and he adopted, a, adopted human. a human. So he's obviously so... got some... <laughs> yeah, and so he's, he's in, unusual in, that in respect, Star yeah. Trek, is there any other choice which is impossible mm. because of that individual, rather, rather than, than impossible because it's like a universally seen impossible yeah. choice? Like. Well, I suppose arguably that's the situation with the Doctor in Latent Image as well. Is that another Doctor might be able to just accept? You know, I made that decision. I don't even know why I chose this patient rather than that patient. You know, and as a human being, you might. I mean, if you were in that situation, you might question it. You know, was it because this person reminded me of someone that I know? Was it because that person's partner was in the room? You, you, you know, and you might just sort of force yourself to live with the fact that you made a decision that you can't really justify rationally, but that, you know, you, you did have to do it. And the, the 
end result was positive. You know, one of the patients survived and otherwise neither of them would have survived. I sort of wonder whether with Sarek there's also the fact that, um, I mean, I think, I think Lethe's a fantastic episode. It's the first, it's the first episode of Discovery and I like Discovery from the beginning, but it's the first one that I really loved, I think. It's the first one that kind of really grabbed me and it was partly that moment because I think it, it's very clever what it does because it, it, it deals with this literally 50-year-old continuity question, which is what went wrong between Spock and Sarek. And we don't, you know, we know that they have this very difficult relationship. We don't really fully understand what happened. They bring in this character, Michael Burnham. Everyone's sort of saying, well, she's Spock's sister. You can't just give Spock a sister. How do you make sense of that? And and so instead of like having this kind of continuity problem that they have to sort of brush under the carpet, they've actually solved a continuity mystery in the most brilliant way because it's completely believable that this it, it suddenly, in like one line, it explains this mystery that we've not quite understood uh, perfectly in terms of these people's personalities, in terms of Sarek, in terms of Spock. Um, and it was, I mean, that was the first moment in Discovery where I literally, you know, gasped out loud watching that because I, I suddenly realised when he asked that question, you know, it all falls into place. It all makes sense. And no one would have guessed that that was the cause of that of that rift in that relationship and all that trouble. And suddenly you can kind of understand it. You can understand where Sarek's resentment comes from because it's kind of misplaced guilt in a sense that he's directing at Spock. You can understand where all these difficult relationships come from. Um, so I wonder whether part of it is you know, yes, you're right, like any other Vulcan would have made that decision. So it's peculiar to Sarek that it's a difficult decision. And actually, it's not just that it's peculiar to Sarek as a character and as a person. It's peculiar to Sarek because it's Star Trek and we've been watching it for 50 years. And for that character, this choice makes so much, uh, has so much meaning for the viewer in a way that it wouldn't you know, frankly, you know, some, someone else in, in Discovery choosing which of their kids gets to go to a particular university, essentially. Uh, yeah, so what? But because we've got all this backstory and we've got all this context and we know how difficult Spock and Sarek's relationship is as a result, you know, it, it, it gives that moment so much power. So then I guess the question is, are impossible choices impossible because of our emotions in the choice? So, I mean, would anybody if they entered um, into um, a concentration camp and they were two random children were dragged in front of them mm. um, or they were given, I don't know, a, a pot of money mm. in a completely different situation. They were said, you have two children from a poor um, ghettoized area and you can only send one child to a prestigious boarding school or whatever and you've got this money, who are you going to give it to? Would those still be impossible choices? Or is it because we know the children, the children are our children, or um, the, the, the the two people that we're trying to save on the operating table are our colleagues, they're part mm. of our crew? Mm. I mean, is it the, the close connection to us as individuals is what makes the choice impossible? Or there are there just some genuinely impossible choices? I'm thinking of, like, um, City on the Edge of Forever, mm. as uh, you know, the original series episode, when Kirk has to choose to let Edith Keeler die. And that's a choice where he doesn't actually have to do something. He doesn't have to choose mm. somebody. He has to just choose not to do something. Um, but in that situation, I mean, do we care about Edith Keeler? I mean, I don't think we dislike her, but we only really care about her because Kirk's in love with her. Mm. And so is it the emotional connection that a person has to that that person or this scenario or this outcome that makes your choice impossible? Like, is it the emotion is what I'm saying? Or is it like a, is there a moral aspect to it? I think it's you, it's sort of the classic scenario. It, 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 it does have to have that personal relationship. Really. That's what gives the Sophie's choice story so much 
power. That's what makes it so. I mean, in you know, in, in the context of you know Holocaust stories, which are replete with so many awful, you know moral abominations and, and terrible degrading treatment for people it, it's something that even in that context is shockingly awful do you know what i mean to make someone make a decision like that and you know and apparently it is based on you know reported instances of things like that that may well have happened so you know it's it's not completely fictitious and it's not completely uh it's not remotely, imaginary yeah it's not remotely it's, surprising it's, 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 it's not impossible like it's not impossible yeah. that um you know uh, someone as, as happens in this film uh forces that decision i mean i think the the story in mosaic is quite interesting from that point of view because again it's about um uh relationships basically the situation what happens in mosaic this is a spoiler for anyone who hasn't read mosaic uh stop the podcast go and read it it's a good book um but what we discover is that so, so what happens to Janeway? She goes in the shuttlecraft with her fiance and her father, and the shuttle crashes on this uh, icy planet. Um, and Janeway uh, regains consciousness in the, you know, in the ice. Um, but her, but her, um, her father and her fiance have both the, the shuttle's gone under the sea and and they've died. Um, and there's this. It's quite interesting talking about memory because she has this kind of confused understanding of what she's seeing and of what's going on so she keeps focusing on this uh iceberg that she sees and she keeps because she's a scientist she keeps saying why is there an iceberg uh icebergs meant to be in the sea we're not in the sea i'm standing on lap you know i'm standing on frozen ground um and and she can't quite put it all together but she's had this awful experience her father's died her fiance's died she's lost everyone basically and so she sinks into this terrible depression for many months and won't get out of bed um until in the end her sister and her family kind of rouse her out of it and and, and she you know gets back to her old self and gets back in starfleet and so on but then she has this kind of there's this uh theme that keeps coming up about this this closed door she keeps having this dream about a closed door i mean it's fairly ob- like it's not, not massively subtle symbolism but there's a door to a room she wants she has to go in there and she says she has to clean something out and she doesn't know what's behind the door and in the end in this sort of modern day because the way mosaic works is it's like a series of flashbacks telling her whole life story interspersed with this present day story on Voyager in the Delta Quadrant. Um, she suddenly gets to this point where she can open the door and, and find out what's inside. And w- the truth is that she has basically, uh, a bit like what's happened to the doctrine late in image where, where his memories have been altered by other people. In her case, she's essentially created a false memory in order to protect herself because what actually happened was it wasn't just that it was this tragic situation, um, that they, you know, they crashed and, and that the two people she cared about most drowned. Um, actually she had the option to save one of them, but she wouldn't accept that she could only save one of them. She only had enough power in the transporter to beam one of them out. And she just was not willing to accept that. And so she kept trying and trying and trying to get more and more power. And then she did finally get enough power. And by the time she'd done it, they, the, uh, shuttlecraft had sunk, which was what the, what, which was this thing that she kept thinking was an iceberg, actually. She had this memory of seeing the shuttlecraft sinking and she'd blocked it out and imagined that it was an iceberg. Um, and so, so in that situation, her refusal to make the choice actually created the, th- you know, the third awful scenario, which is both, both choices put together, which I suppose is what would have happened to Sophie if she hadn't chosen one of her children to be killed. Uh, they would have taken them both away. But so for Janeway, that's the really awful thing is that she, you know, and, and there's this, there's a whole sort of paragraph about how could she, whichever choice she made, how would she live with it? You know, she saved her fiance and her father died. She'd spend her whole marriage, you know, thinking I saved you and, and, and killed my father. If she saved the father and, and the fiance die, um, 
you know, that would be very difficult as well. So there's this kind of, whatever she chooses would be, would be awful and unbearable. And in fact, what she does is that is kind of what you expect the Star Trek captain to do. You expect him to say, I refuse this. Um, and there's an episode of the original series where, um, Captain Kirk is given two, I think it's Operation Annihilate. Spock is arguing to do one thing. McCoy is arguing to do the other. Both of these options, they have, um, terrible consequences. Neither of them is a good option. And he says, I, basically, I don't accept these two choices. I want a third choice, you know, come up with something else because I'm not doing either of these things. And that's sort of what you expect to be the kind of heroic Star Trek captain's attitude in a way to basically say, I don't, I don't accept your choice. I'm not going to play along with this. That's what Janeway does. And it gets both the people that she cares about most in the world killed. So it's kind of, um, that's Which is a pretty dark and grim yeah. <laughs> piece of backstory. Well, it's impossible, isn't it? That's mm. the thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, that's that's actually a good point because um, that's very much in Kirk's personality. And like mm. what you said is what you expect mm. from a starship captain. Um, and that leads on to like the official impossible choice mm. in Star Trek, which is the Kobayashi Maru mm. um, test, which... Um, it's an official sort of impossible choice, like a, a no-win scenario exercise designed to um, test cadets um, in like ethical decision-making and the, and the leadership. And part of the um, test teaches students to recognise the limits of their powers and what they decide to do in the face of that knowledge. And I guess, in a way, what Janeway decides to do in the face of that knowledge, like... She doesn't really recognise the limit of her powers, mm-hmm. does she? Mm-hmm. She thinks, I can, I can get out Somehow of this. Somehow I'll make it work. I can solve it. Yeah. But actually... There are cases in Star Trek and in space and, and in life mm. generally where there is only something, only so much you can do. You can't, you can't necessarily always bend the laws of physics. You can't, you know, magic something, some better scenario into being when sometimes you're faced with two impossible outcomes. Mm. Um, so the, the Kobayashi Maru test, which I'm sure most people know, is when you, um, you have the choice of entering a neutral zone, the neutral zone to save a civilian ship that's in trouble. And if you enter the neutral zone, neutral zone, you can break the, um, the treaty and you can start a war. But if you don't, then the civilian ship will die. And in the case of Kirk, he actually reprograms the test so that there's a third scenario and he, mm. and he wins. Um, and he's the only person to pass this, pass the test. But the whole point is the test is not supposed to be passed. It's supposed to show how you deal with overwhelming adversity how you Mm. deal with death how you deal with a no-win scenario Mm. um the interesting thing about the the story in mosaic is it's an impossible choice that is pushed upon janeway through circumstances Mm. as opposed to an impossible choice in sophie's choice which is pushed pushed upon sophie through people yeah people are imposing uh other human beings are imposing this impossible choice on Sophie. Mm. Um, and that made me think a little bit about impossible choices that are, po- are pushed onto people by um, circumstances. It made me think about the Deep Space Nine episode, um, Children of Time. And I'm saying this with a smile on my face because it's like we were watching, watching it's it. It's such a knockabout, hilarious <laughs> episode, isn't it? <laughs> I was watching it with my husband. Uh, I think it was on. Was it, it was a Saturday night and he was, after it finished, he kind of fell asleep halfway through and then he woke up as the credits were rolling and he was like, man, that was awful. Um, <laughs> he's, he just said, this is this is a scenario, like my husband's not a huge Trekkie. Hmm. He said, this is a scenario that would never happen. And I was like, well, that's why that's, they, that's that's where they did it. Yeah. <laughs> that's why they posted it. They wanted yeah. this impossible yeah. choice where you had to sacrifice mm. a whole, like they say, it's like 8,000 people mm. um, for, the, for the life of... Um, 
like one person, namely mm. Kira, um, and the the lie that sort of personal lives of everyone else aboard the Defiant. And one of the things that I thought was interesting was um, there was a rather dodgy moral question at the, at the heart of this episode, which I haven't really heard anyone address, which is that the the, the scenario that that um, the inhabitants of Gaia, which is the planet that the Defiant crash lands on and then founds a new civilization. The inhabitants of Gaia came up with the idea of solving this problem by creating duplicates, um, so I imagine like doppelgangers, of the um, of the crew of the Defiant, which mm. doesn't actually address like the moral implications of grounding a whole bunch of people on a planet. Because so so I imagine like the original Defiant crew would get to go back to Deep Space Nine and Kira mm. would be saved. But the duplicates would end up crash landing on Gaia. That still means there's a version of Kira somewhere that will die. There's a version of O'Brien somewhere that will suffer without his family. Was so, it not a lie though? I haven't seen that episode for a while. Maybe it I was a lie. This. I thought it was a ruse. But I agree with you. Like but, in but principle, I, I, I sort of thought last time I watched it that it was an odd solution. You're but right. Originally, Cisco really... is in favour of it. Cisco's yeah. like, right, we'll do that. And I'm like, you're condemning like a duplicate yeah. version of yourself to live forever mm. without Jake. I mean, yeah. like. I mean, I mean that brings up a whole bunch of questions of mm. whether or not, like, a copy of something is still as important and as worthy as the original of something. But that's another podcast. But um, <laughs> but at the same time, it is sort of. I mean, that is in a Star Trek sense. I think that is often a way that's seen as a way of solving these kind of impossible situations. I mean, if you think about Endgame, you kind of almost. I think throughout the whole of Voyage, if you think about like Caretaker and Endgame, there's this and Night as well, uh, which kind of picks up on this in the in the kind of middle of Voyager's run. There's this. Uh, the whole of Voyager is predicated on Janeway making maybe not an impossible choice, but a very controversial and difficult choice. You know, she's got. Uh, does she protect the Acumpa? Does she do the right thing for these strangers, essentially? Or does she do the right thing for her crew and take them home? And then for seven years, we see the consequences of her making the, the choice for the strangers. And, you know, in night, she's questioning it. Do I do the wrong thing? You know, is my first duty really to the people that I'm commanding and not to these other people? And then interestingly, in Endgame, you kind of get the same thing because you get these two... Uh, you know, Admiral Jamer comes back and says, look, I've got a solution. You can do this thing. You can get, get home earlier. We can kind of cheat the system. Um, then there's the alternative is they can just, you know, they can deal a blow to the Borg and not get home earlier. But what they end up being able to do is to do both. So because they've got, literally, they've got two Janeways, they've got the old Janeway, the new Janeway, you know, one of them can carry through one plan, the other one can carry through the other. So it's almost the same thing. They kind of split the character and therefore they can do, they can do both scenarios at once and kind of save both of them. But, Obviously, that's not really possible. That is a kind of sci-fi construct. Um, I mean, I think Children of Time is, is, is an interesting one as well, because the sense I get watching that, and, and this is sort of leaving to one side the way that Odo behaves, but basically, other than Odo, everyone else ultimately comes to the realisation that there is no real choice. There's, there's a moral choice and a selfish choice. You know, they're not, they're not kind of equal options for them to choose between and i think that episode is quite interesting in that sense there's this kind of very reluctant coming around to doing the right thing because it costs it's going to cost them all a lot you know uh o'brien's never going to see his wife again you know like you say uh cisco's never going to see his son again kira's going to have to die she's gonna have to sacrifice herself but ultimately they're all willing to do that and i think it my favourite scene in that episode is basically where o'brien starts to come around to it because he's been very resistant he's been kind of putting up a wall and basically saying, I'm not going to engage with this community. Uh, you know, this is not really real as far as I'm concerned. This is from a timeline that hasn't happened yet. These people don't exist. And then at a certain point, he kind of, 
he, he sort of opens like emotionally to them. Do you know what I mean? And he becomes invested. He's, he empathizes with them, I suppose is what it is. And it's, you know, it's kind of interesting if you look at it in terms of ancestors and genealogy and that sort of thing. There have been studies done on the kind of the way that we relate to ancestors at different levels and also the way that we think about our future generations, which is relevant in terms of things like ecology and, you know, decisions that people make in terms of the planet and future generations and so on. And basically what they've discovered is that people can empathise maybe like three generations in either direction and beyond that it's all kind of abstract um and so i think that's that's sort of a big part of it is that and that's why these decisions have to be about family members they have to be about immediate family members you know children parents spouses or whatever um because once you get any further than that we just don't seem to be able to empathize that if you know if we do something now it's going to affect someone in 300 years basically we just don't care um and there's it's it's kind of there's an interesting parallel with that i think in the episode a matter of time which is one of those kind of classic impossible you know impossible choices episodes where picard has this choice does he uh does he do nothing and some people will die or does he try something and potentially kill everyone basically and he's sort of wrestling with this dilemma um he and he asks the guy who claims to be a time traveler from the future even though it turns out in the end he isn't um and he basically says well to me it doesn't really matter you know all these people have been dead for hundreds of years i don't care um essentially and and so i suppose there's that element of it is like what's your if they're if they're not emotionally connected to you because they're your children or whatever do you you know do you like o'brien do you kind of put up a wall do you do you decide that in order to make these decisions you have to not care about people um or if you do care about them how do you kind of reconcile that if you're if you're going to make decisions that are having a terrible impact on them so in Children of um, Children of Time, you're right about O'Brien. He does actually, I think, I can't exactly remember the exact quote, but he does say something like, um, you know, I don't know these people yet. Or he mm-hmm. says something like, I don't know the, the, I don't know this family. I don't know these people. I, I do know my family, my family mm-hmm. back on DS9. So you're right, it's his personal connection. He's not personally connected to the people on Gaia, even though they are directly his biological descendants. Um but there is something to, there is something to be said. Perhaps I don't know if it's necessarily the case in all of Star Trek series, like amongst all um, aliens. I mean, I mm-hmm. imagine I feel that the Klingons are much more connected to their ancestors mm-hmm. and the descendants um, than the humans are. But I think this is a particularly human failing, and it's something that we encounter in real world um, at the moment um, to do with like things like climate change. You know, we can't. The average person on the street doesn't can't always think. Or imagine what um, climate change will look like, the effects of climate change will look like, you know, a thousand years from now, mm. or even just a hundred years from now, because they know they won't be alive, it's hard for them to feel emotionally connected to it, it's hard for them to see that the decisions that they make now will affect people, you know, generations to come. And it's hard for them to care. It's hard for them to care. But know. I feel that's a failing. I thought it's a human failing. I mean, mm. I wonder if the Vulcans would be like that, or the Klingons, or perhaps maybe aliens that had alien races that have more of a connection to their elders mm. <laughs> um or you know i mean if you think about like the catras stored in 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 in, in on vulcan i think it's a mount salia salia yeah. yeah um you know the the long history that vulcan has of of like devastation and war uh, and then there are ad- ad- adoption of logic and spock talks about that repeatedly in star trek but he's talking about something that happened thousands and thousands of years before he was born but it's still something that's kind of present in almost the vulcan psyche so i think this is a particularly human failing of um 
of well of the human race really to not see beyond their own kin and not to see beyond their own lifespan and actually it affects almost everything in our world from the politics the people that we elect to be our politicians from the political decisions of our politicians um making decisions that will affect the next five years but not seeing how this stuff will affect like this stuff will affect like people 100 years from now and one of the reasons why we live in relative prosperity in parts of the western world is because our ancestors um made better political decisions or, or they or they mm. tried to make changes to society or um or, or their civilization that would last beyond their own lifespans mm. so children of our time is a weird is a weird example of that like of them thinking beyond themselves, thinking generations beyond themselves. But in a way, it's interesting because that's the very Starfleet thing to do. That's the right, it's the right things to do. You know, we all know that the right thing to do is not to screw up the earth for future generations and to, you know, to be responsible and so on. And to, you know, treat the generations, you know, five or six down the line the same way we would our children or our children's children. Um, but that's what I think is quite interesting about the episode is, is really, it's, it's sort of obvious what the, morally right thing to do is but they struggle to accept it because they have personal interests that conflicts with it so there's this kind of real reluctance it reminds me a bit of um do you watch doctor who yeah you know the final david tennant episode of doctor who and there was this whole sort of mystery about how was he we knew he was going to die and that someone will knock four times and it was assumed the master because the master had this knocking noise was going to kill him and in fact what it was that killed him was that the silly old man uh got himself locked in the radiation tube or whatever and the doctor had to swap places with him and and basically kill himself to save this silly old man um and i thought that was quite an interesting moment because he he has this sort of realization of you know actually it's a choice you know he could just choose to let that silly old man die basically but he can't do that because he's the doctor he's a decent person uh he knows he's not going to do that but he has this real sort of pained look of kind of like i'm gonna have to kill myself now in order to do the right thing and you know and that's a real loss and that's a real um challenge but at the same time it's the right thing to do and that i suppose is you know it would be good if we had that attitude towards environmental issues or towards things that are going to affect other people or that level of empathy for you know people from other countries or people around the world or whatever but i suppose uh that's the thing is kind of being able to set your own self-interest aside and and do the right thing when it's really not what you want to do. I mean, that's very much a lot of what Star Trek's about. So yeah. one of the things that I thought was interesting to examine was like, um, like why impossible choices um, are such good drama when mm. it comes to Star Trek. Um, and I think for several reasons, I think space travel would um, throw up so all sorts of different difficult dilemmas and difficult situations that we haven't even thought about yet um, just because space is an environment that human beings haven't naturally evolved other people may disagree with me people haven't naturally evolved to exist in long term um, difficult choices provide good drama for an audience for in terms of television but also impossible choices allow the viewer to explore the true measure of a person's character mm. um, and that's something that Star Trek is all about the true measure of a person's character um, not who you are just on a day-to-day basis but who you are when pushed to the very limit of um, 
of your like existence. Mm. Um, and a good example of this is the Wrath of Khan mm. um, and Spock making this decision at the end to sacrifice. Spoiler alert! Um, but if you, I don't think we've ever had a spoiler alert. If you haven't the seen the Wrath of Khan, Wrath of Khan yeah. I think like you know, there's got to be something wrong with you people. Um, but you know, Spock makes this decision at the very mm. end to um, sacrifice his life um, so that um, the Enterprise can escape um, the Genesis device and and Khan. Um, without dying and I see that as a very impossible choice but I wonder if Spock does Mm. because actually maybe it is an impossible choice for him maybe it's just he seems very certain the way he leaves the bridge the way he makes his way down to engineering like he knows that McCoy is trying to stop him Mm. he's just very deliberate about it Mm. I don't think it is an impossible choice for Spock it's an impossible choice for Kirk because he's going to lose his best friend. It's an impossible choice for the entire crew of, of the Enterprise because they're going to lose their captain and their instructor, their mm. beloved Vulcan, right? It's not an impossible choice for Spock. Spock is... There's no way he's not going to do it. That's the yeah. thing. And and he can rationalise it in terms of saying the needs of the many and so on. He can, you know, he can justify it. He can uh, sort of explain it in very cool terms. I mean, it's interesting, it, but it is very simple, but he is regretful about it, I suppose. And in fact, I don't know why I didn't think of this, you know, that scene in Doctor Who is basically a rehash of, of the ending of the Wrath of Khan, in a sense, because that's literally exactly what the Doctor is having to do. But it's interesting, isn't it? You know, you say it's impossible for Kirk. Would Kirk have, I mean, it, in Next Generation, we have that episode where Deanna Troy is taking the bridge, uh, Command, what's it called? The bridge test. It's basically command, the command yeah. test. And the, and she can't work out what the solution to this problem is. And it turns out the solution, it's not the no-win scenario. It's not the Kobayashi Maru where she just has to accept that the Enterprise gets blown up or whatever. The answer is that she has to send Geordie, who is not only the chief engineer, but her friend, to die in order to fix it. Um, and it's not actually Geordie going on his own like Spock did and taking it matters into his own hands or even volunteering. She has to tell him that that's what he's going to do. I mean, could Kirk ever have done that? Do you know what I mean? If for some reason Spock was the only one who could have fixed the um, thing in the Wrath of Khan, would Kirk have given that order? Because given that Kirk is the guy who doesn't accept the no-win scenario, who, like Janeway, refuses to make those kind of decisions, what would have happened? And would the ship have blown up? Because in some ways, is that a failure of command to, to refuse that? Or is that just very human to say there are some decisions that I'm absolutely not going to take, no matter what happens as a result. I don't think that Kirk would have ordered Spock to sacrifice his life, or just because the next movie, The Search for Spock, he sac- I mean, Kirk mm. doesn't sacrifice the life of an entire ship of cadets. The Enterprise mm. is just a bridge, bridge crew at that point. Mm. But, um, he does, but he does sacrifice a lot for Spock. He sacrifices his ship, mm. um, kind of inadvertently not deliberately obviously but he sacrifices the life of his son he sacrifices mm. his career he sacrifices the career of his entire bridge crew um and he does it to say spock and he does it because yeah spock is more important to him than all of that this is kind of a little bit like cisco not being willing initially in children of time to order to make an order to deliver the order to, that kira should die yeah and he says like i don't have the right to do that like i will not order one of my mm my um one of my crew members to die and you could wonder a little bit i mean we don't really know what the captain lorca's um uh, what he what he wants to do we don't really we don't really know what his um goal is in mm. discovery just yet i suspect that he's his he's slightly more nefarious than we're seeing so far mm-hmm. um but he essentially is ordering stamets to destruct himself yeah every single time he orders him into the spore drive 
Um, and that's kind of something I couldn't imagine Kirk doing, couldn't imagine Cisco doing, mm. couldn't imagine Picard doing. I could have kind of imagined Janeway doing it if she was really desperate, maybe Archer. But even then, you know, I mean, it's a captain, I think, in Star Trek isn't supposed to order mm. their crew members on suicide missions. They're mm. not supposed to order their crews, their, their crew members to knowingly and willingly, like, injure or hurt themselves, if that mm. makes sense. So I don't think Spock would have, I don't think Kirk would have ordered Spock to, to kill himself or, or, or to die, like, it's an interesting point. I mean, if you think about it in terms of, you know, you were saying he, he loses his ship, he loses his son. I mean, the, the losing the son is the, is the most kind of, it is almost a Sophie's choice. He loses his son in order to save his friend, doesn't he? And you can almost, it's, it, it's, I mean, actually, Captain Kirk, you kind of imagine if he was put in that situation, I, I wouldn't 100% be convinced he was going to choose to save his son rather than his friend in that scenario. Do you know what I mean? Which is, you, it goes against the kind of intuitive, what, what you would expect. But I mean, if you think of it that way, it is almost, it's not a Sophie's choice exactly, but it's the same kind of sacrifice being made. It's there's a kind of one for one, uh, you know, these two people who are, I mean, I know he doesn't really have a relationship with his son, but on some level, notionally, they're the most important people to him. And he, you know, in order to gain back one of them, there's a cost, you know, which is a sort of theme that you often see with these, you know, if you kind of, I mean, because Spock is being resurrected, there's a kind of miraculous element to it. And when you have stories where something like that is being requested or is being engineered, there is often a cost to somewhere else. Do you, do you know what I mean? What's the sacrifice going to be? I mean, we see that at the end of Deep Space Nine, there's this whole, the penance is going to be exacted and Cisco is going to be made to suffer because of, uh, you know, begging for the profits to, again, to solve, you know, basically a, a, a no-win scenario. Basically, he he finds a way of cheating by just, you know, invoking a kind of deus ex machina, essentially, and, and, you know, doing it that way. But I mean, but it's kind of, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. I, I think maybe, but maybe part of it is also what the kind of narrative expectations of these different series and these different films and so on are. Because when we say Kirk won't make a decision like that, but Janeway might if she's desperate enough, and Archer will. I mean, yeah, Archer is the captain who doesn't get to, you know, he gets the sort of mosaic version of Captain Janeway rather than the endgame version of Captain Janeway. He gets the situation where actually there isn't a third alternative he keeps being put, you know, in season three of Enterprise, he keeps being put in these situations where he, the number of times that they say in that season, oh, we had no choice, we have to do this, or I don't have any choice, I'm going to have to do this. Having to do something that you know is morally wrong. Um, and you know, Cisco maybe had it once really in, in the pale moonlight. Archer sort of has it again and again and again. Um, and understandably, it kind of affects him. He doesn't exactly have a breakdown. He doesn't have a kind of, you know, severe mental health episode as a result, but he, you know, by the end of that season, he's mentally in a very difficult place, you know, and he's got a lot of guilt and shame and all these kind of feelings that are associated with these impossible choices um, that he is really struggling to deal with. He's not, you know, he, there's that line, isn't there, somewhere where he says, I want to go back to being, you know, the, the man I was before this happened, basically. Uh, and he's been kind of corrupted by it, by being put in these situations. It's affected him as a kind of human being, as a kind of moral person. Are there any impossible choices in the new um, rebooted movies in the Kelvin timeline? Because I know that there, I mean, I know during um, Star Trek Into Darkness, Kirk sort of says, 
Um, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I know what I can do. I only know mm. what I can do. When Kirk's trying, uh, Spock's trying to advise him to not trust Khan and not do this risky endeavour of, mm. you know, trying to board the ship, the, I cannot remember the name, the, the big dark, like, Section 31, dangerous, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah ship. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was an interesting line. I That seems like a very Kirk thing to say. And actually, that's sometimes what people do say to themselves when they have to make impossible choices you know it's like taking the morality out of it they're mm. saying you know he sort of says like i i, I you know I, I don't know i can't say what i'm supposed to do but i know what i can mm. Mm. you know i know i, I don't, don't know what the right thing to do is in this situation but i only know what my options available to me are mm. and i'm going to take them even if they're not the right things to do mm. um and i, I wondered if that was. I wonder if that came up in the Kelvin timeline films because our nature of what we think as dis- moral decisions and the right choices to make and the wrong choices that we make um, have changed as Star Trek has developed. Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm. So the idea of like morality in, in the original series in the '60s is slightly different than and an impossible choice in the '60s. You know, Kirk having to choose between which red shirt person on a planet ends up dying um, versus. Sarek having to choose between his two children mm. um, in Discovery if our ideas of what impossible choices are have changed over the last like 50 years of Star Trek or is it just that our idea of what constitutes TV drama has changed, do you yeah. know what I mean and what we expect you know in some ways Archer is not you, you know Archer is not a real person Arch, Archer is put in situations that no other Star Trek captain has been put in because at that point when they were writing season 3 of Enterprise they were trying to do something very different that hadn't been done in Star Trek before and slightly I mean you know we talk about Roddenberry's box all the things that you're not allowed to do when you're writing Star Trek you know you're not allowed to have too much conflict you're not allowed to have blah uh, and gradually you know after Gene Roddenberry died well and even before Gene Roddenberry died to some extent you know people started kind of dismantling that and saying well actually we think we can have this and we can have this and so on and it's still Star Trek even if we've got religion even if we've got money even if we've we've got whatever but I mean then there is the danger I mean there was quite an interesting episode of From There to Here where uh, Sue Kissenweather I think was was saying this about the episode Damage the Enterprise episode where Archer steals the warp coils um, and her take on it was basically this just you know, whether it works or not, it didn't feel like Star Trek to her. She, she just felt like the story is fine, but there's something missing for it to be Star Trek. There's got to be a consequence or there's got to be a kind of resolution. There's, there's something absent from that story. Um, and I think that's the sort of territory that Enterprise veered into in that third season. I mean, I really like the third season of Enterprise. I think it's probably my favourite. But I do understand why some people felt that it was missing some kind of moral um, grounding, really, that we expect. And in the end, they, they sort of get it back by the end of that season. But there's a long period where it sort of feels like they're kind of murkily feeling around in this kind of moral void, in a sense. A, a bit like actually talking about voids. You know, the Voyager episode, the void is kind of the same thing. It's there a space where there's no no kind of ethical behaviour. And suddenly and suddenly there's this question. And, and that's, you know, there's Janeway faced with a, a very difficult, if not impossible, choice again. Does she abandon her principles? Does she... Uh, you know, do the self-interested thing rather than the Starfleet thing. Well, before we go, I wanted to ask you, are there any impossible choices in Star Trek that are impossible because you have to choose between two very good things? Or two, mm. very good, very, two very good outcomes, as opposed to Sophie's choice, which is obviously, there's nothing good about it. Mm, that's a good question. 
Can you think of any? I mean, not really, no. I mean, I guess maybe Troy has to choose between Riker and, like, Worf. I mean... I think one of those is definitely better than the other. <laughs> I mean, oh yeah, well, yeah I would yeah, be, yeah, yeah. obviously... No, I take your point. I bet, do you see what I'm saying? Like, as in... Mm. Which is more like, realistically, is more like the situation that people have in life, where they have difficult decisions yeah. to make. You've got two you know, very good you, job offers. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Which one do you take? I don't know, yeah. That's, I mean, that's, well, I suppose Riker has the choice between does he go and take a ship of his own or does he stay on the Enterprise, which is the best ship in the fleet, uh, in, you know, not, but not in command. I guess something like that, maybe. But, but they don't feel as weighty. They're kind of, they're smaller, they're more relatable choices, choices like that, because they're not, you know, life and death. They're not, um, you know, I mean, the, the situation, Sophie's choice, the situation in all these stories is is very dramatic and very, um, the stakes are extremely high. But it's interesting, I mean, when we talk about these kind of scenarios, these kind of weird questions, I do think there's something about the idea of extreme choices that if it's not tragic we actually find it quite funny i mean i'm thinking about um for, for example uh i don't know if you've ever listened to richard herring's interview podcast where he interviews he has this uh podcast called leicester square theater podcast he interviews comedians and he has what he calls emergency questions which are basically the same questions he asks everyone and the sort of joke is that he asks he uses these questions when the interview is going badly and he needs he can't think of anything to ask them but most of them are things like he has one would you rather have a ha- would you rather have a hand made of ham or an armpit that will dispense sun cream <laughs> so they're absurd, absurd questions but you you know you have to choose one or the other and neither of those is particularly bad they're not but but they are in that kind of realm of like would you rather questions yeah. um and people are fascinated by would you rather questions people you, you know people love them i suppose because they feel that they it's almost like a game yeah. it's like a sort of it's a strange game I have a slightly ambivalent relationship to them. I had a girlfriend who who asked obsessive would you rather questions and at first I thought it was quite kind of charming and it got to a point where it actually really annoyed me. And I was like, I don't want to make these bloody decisions anymore. You Why do you make me exactly. decide? Why do I have to decide about these absurd things, you know? But I mean, but I think there is, maybe there is something about, you know, thinking back to the doctrine, latent image and the fact that he is sort of existentially troubled by this decision and there's this kind of he talks this stuff about quantum physics it becomes almost like sort of schrodinger's cat experiment or something you know you do do this thing do you do that thing maybe it is something that because human beings are aware that we make choices in a way that um you know other animals make choices but they maybe don't think about it and they don't suffer guilt and shame and they don't you know there aren't all these uh mental consequences um that maybe being a kind of choosing species and having this idea that we control our own lives and we control our own destinies you know we're not even even say like the ancient greeks or something some society that believes in fate and you you know you don't believe that you have such autonomy for the most part we do believe that we have essentially autonomy in our lives to make our own decisions to you know to make our own choices and certainly in star trek you know that is that kind of radical autonomy is is the kind of that's the Starfleet captain is kind of the emblem of that. You know, they've got their own ship, they've got their ability to go out and do what they want, to do the right thing, to make the tough decisions. You know, um, but with that comes this kind of awesome responsibility, I suppose, and the potential for these kind of second guessing yourself or or doubting your decisions or you know struggling to deal emotionally with decisions where you know there, where there wasn't a good outcome really and you just pick the least worst one i think until recently that was something that was actually very american culture wise um i'm thinking of a particular um 
person that a judge actually called Leonard Hand, who was an American judge who um, swore a whole bunch of um, refugees after World War Two. Well, actually during World War Two, swore a whole bunch of refugees as into American citizenship, um, and he did it like a mass swearing in, um, and so there's a whole crowds of people who are all going to become American citizens um, there and then. And he made a big speech where he said, um, being American means never believing you're always right. Questioning mm-hmm. your motives, questioning your decisions. Mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't say question your motive, question your decisions. I'm paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually think, and obviously America, uh, Star Trek is an American show. It's produced in America mm-hmm. and written by Americans and directed by Americans. And it's more international now, I know, but it was traditionally, uh, cultural, American cultural, um, artifact I suppose um, and so that's something that I think is reflected is never assuming you're always right questioning your decisions and mm. and possible choices is all about you questioning how you make the decision what you're going to say what you're going to do what decision you're going to make and then dealing with the consequences and the repercussions of that decision mm. um, if you are required to make an impossible choice about which podcast to listen to <laughs> I can safely say right now we can make that choice for you <laughs> That choice can be taken away from you. It's okay. It's fine. But, um, you know, you can you cheat listen and, to listen to, and listen to as many <laughs> as you like. So. <laughs> but um, I think that's all that we have time for today. So um, thank you, Duncan, for talking to me about impossible choices. My pleasure. Um, if you have anything um, that you'd like to say, or anything you'd like to comment on this podcast about impossible choices, and you yourself have had to make an impossible choice um, in space recently, uh, or, or about what to eat for dinner, or... If you had to choose between two children, maybe you best keep that to yourself. That um, could be one for one of Amy's shows, I think. <laughs> but um, it's been a pleasure having you all with us today. Um, and it's been fun talking about, impos- well, sort of fun talking about impossible choices, about Sophie's choice. But this isn't the only thing that we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things that you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Warp 5. Like, Mario is not a good person and I don't like him. But when he openly mistreats Luigi is when I hate him, is when I make the decision, I don't want him to make it through this. I don't want him to make it to the end at all. The orb. That blanket really helped the show because it didn't end up turning into what Voyager did, which is we got to launch a network. This has to be this. It has to be put in a box that we can't get out of, you know, like Deep Space Nine takes the box, crumples it up and throws it in the corner. The 602 Club. I love it. Um, have I said that enough? I, I think I said earlier that I was waiting to get to Th- Timothy Dalton. Um, not to knock on Roger Moore, but I, I didn't like Roger Moore as much as I liked um, Dalton and then Connery and then Craig. The Ready Room. Since 90, early 92, I had been, I was lucky enough to get the contract to do the Companion for Next Generation, went out for a week to LA when DS9 was still very, very secret. And I just, my first glimpse of DS9 was knowing that they were working on it and, you know, like the script was being passed around in unmarked envelopes between the offices. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, 
or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the large conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter, Duncan at Barrett's Books, and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media. And you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X-Files podcast, if you type that into Twitter and Facebook. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended already.